0: Let's pray together. Father, thank you for just being able to sing your praise tonight to glory in your cross and to just exclaim that it is only beneath the cross that we can find the peace and grace and rest that you alone give. Lord, help us to walk in humility, uh, to be concerned with the church at large throughout the world, Help us to have a mind that is the mind of Christ. And Lord, we do seek that, Lord, your gospel will go throughout the world and touch the hearts and lives of people in our nation and in all nations. We know, Father, that you are working. You always have been working. Help us, Lord, to have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand that. And now, Father, teach us tonight. For we have one teacher whose name is Jesus Your Son and our Lord and Your Holy Spirit who gives us eyes open to Your Word in ways that we can apply it to our lives effectively. But Father, we beg of You, Father, to do a work in our hearts and lives tonight. Be among our fellowship. Comfort the afflicted. Encourage the faint-hearted. And help us, Lord, to look to You for all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in Psalm 19, and Psalm 19 is a familiar psalm, but we um, are going chronologically um, in a certain pattern uh, set out by a commentator by the name of Eric Lane, and just to keep us on track. And some of these psalms, it's impossible to pinpoint with absolute accuracy if they fall in this order. But we have a general reason for why this, um, these are part of the early, uh, the early part of, of David's life. And um, you'll just notice certain things about where David is and, and his speaking that likely point them towards an earlier period. I'm not going to get into um, much of Eric Lane's study on this particular psalm tonight. I'm going to spend a little time in Spurgeon and in the text itself. Um, And then next week we'll be in Psalm 139. And then I'll be passing the baton for at least a month to some of our guys. So let's, um, let's read the psalm, Psalm 19. And it says here, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge." And moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults and keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. And let them not have dominion over me. And then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the king's word to his kings and queens. Amen. Well, it's a familiar psalm, which always makes it harder to study, because there's usually things that we unplumb the depths of that we have not seen before. And this is certainly in the case of this one. As I looked at Psalm 19, What I found is there's actually a New Testament um, quotation of this psalm that uh, makes it uh, clear as to what Paul the Apostle uh, thought about this psalm. And I affirm that the Scriptures are the Word of God, and they are without error. And when they are quoted, the Old Testament and the New, that I don't think that Paul is erring in quoting this Scripture, I don't think that he's taking it out of context. I assume already as a Christian believer that the way he quotes this, he's quoting it in context better than any of us could come up with because the Holy Spirit's guiding him. And so, if I were to say that Paul took this out of context and used it for how he wanted, I'd have to be admitting that the Holy Spirit um, would be wrong in how he wrote this, and i don 't have um, i don 't have that unbelief. I actually believe that the New Testament quotes Old Testament scriptures in the way they are intended in other words, the New Testament, what theologians would call a New Testament priority, tells me the way I should be looking at the Old Testament scriptures so in verse four. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun is quoted in Romans ten eighteen. And let me just turn there where Paul quotes this verse. And I'll just pick up with some familiar verses before that. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's verse Uh, 13 of chapter 10 in Romans. And uh, which, by the way, if you'd want to mark something, that is the chiastic center, meaning it's the center of the whole book of Romans, at least according to Robert Godfrey. Um, He says that's the center of of that there. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord, or it's the center of 9 through 11, I'm sorry, 9 through 11, Whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And we'll come to that as we study Romans, Lord willing. How then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now follow the line of argument. Paul's about to quote this verse from 19 that deals with what most call natural revelation but he's not going to use it that way. So how are they how will they call whom they not believe? How are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? How are they to preach unless they're sent? And as it is written, which I would just mark down there, how are they to preach unless they're sent it requires a call. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, but they have not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That quote shows up right before uh, the famous chapter 53 of Isaiah. Or Isaiah, if you're British, they seem to say it better than us. But... And in Isaiah, you end up with that quote. It's the evangelist saying, We were in the same boat as everybody else in the world. We didn't believe. And they make a turn and they show why they believed. And ultimately, the answer is they believe because the Lamb died. The Lamb, his atoning work, is what purchased their faith. That's the answer in Isaiah there. Totally in context. What Paul is what saying. And he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then he asks again, but I ask, have they not heard? He's saying, Hav- haven't, haven't these people heard the message of the gospel? He says, indeed they have. Now, think about all the things you could put in the next sentence if you were writing. You're not. I'm not. I'm not carried along by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture. The apostles were given that job and they carried it out perfectly because God was carrying them. But there's nobody out writing Scripture. Nobody can. They are not. They have to be an apostle. Apostles are all dead. There's no more Scripture to be written. But if you were to just imagine for a moment what could be written there. You would probably come up with a thousand Scriptures different than this one. Just based on what we understand. But he quotes natural revelation, uh, creation, the book of the world, if you want to call it, versus the book of the Word. He says, their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And that's as far as we have to go for this purpose of this... Explaining this. So, the moment I'm reading that, I'm realizing that my understanding of Psalm 19 is needing some improvement because Paul sees that scripture as indicating the worldwide spread of the Word of God, leaving men without excuse, whether it be Jews or Gentiles. It's all. Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They have to be saved through the preaching of the word. They're not going to be saved through miracles, experiences, reason, wisdom, any of that. But the word of God's got to grip them. And it can't just be that they've heard it. Because we know that the majority of Americans have heard it. They've heard about this gospel. They've heard about Christ. Have they not all heard? Well, the question is, why aren't they believing? We know from this morning the reason people believe is a supernatural, sovereign work of the Holy Spirit of God working within the man to make him believe it. It's like the Westminster, the Second London, all the major Reformed confessions say you could look at the beauty of the Bible, the majesty of the language, all these things but it is the inward witness of the Holy Spirit that ultimately makes a person believe the Word of God. There's no other explanation. So people can have knowledge of what it says, but to love and enjoy the Word of God and delight in it is something that only the Spirit of God can do. Back to the point though. Paul's quoting this and saying this is about the spread of the Word everywhere, the revelation of God. So immediately, I have to change my thinking about the psalm because the psalm actually points to one revelation. One revelation that at least has two distinct parts. Okay, One revelation, it, maybe not the best way to put it. We can always come back to this and probably do better every time because we're going to learn more. But as to what I understand of this, the way we have to change our thinking is Psalm 19 is a single message a single revelation with distinction. And the distinction falls in two parts. And that is the distinction of... It really falls in three parts. The distinction of God's revelation. And don't get mixed up on revelation. So when I say revelation, don't think of uh, the book, right? There's some called Revelations. You know, and you think about when people say it that way, you think, oh, that's ignorant. Somebody's saying it that way. I heard Martin Lloyd-Jones called that too. So I mean... Um, it's just sometimes a common people say you know in the book of revelations you know and they'll go at it that way I don't know I'm not picking that apart I'm just saying don't get confused when we talk about the doctrine of revelation is not about the book of revelation the doctrine of revelation is God revealing himself to humanity to us so that we would understand believe know accept and obey and He's given us two distinct aspects of one revelation. Now, just so you don't um, miss this point, it is vital It is vital um, to understand it. This is not some type of a, well, let, look, we found something nobody else has found. This is something that has been said. And I'm going to read um, a quote from Spurgeon here. In the beginning of his uh, treasury of David on Psalm 19, he says of this. This is the introduction. In his earliest days, the psalmist, while keeping his father's flock, had devoted himself to the study of God's two great books, Nature and Scripture. And he had so thoroughly entered into the spirit of these two only volumes in his library that he was able, with a devout criticism to compare and contrast them, magnifying the excellency of the author as seen in both. How foolish and wicked are those who, instead of accepting the two sacred tomes and delighting to behold the same divine hand in each, spend all their wits in endeavoring to find discrepancies and contradictions. Now that's a clue, midway quote, that's a clue that we've got something wrong. If our major focus on Psalm 19 is to find discrepancies or contradictions between the two, that's not what the Psalm's about. We may rest assured that the true vestiges of creation will never contradict Genesis, nor will a correct cosmos be found at variance with the narrative of Moses. He is wisest who reads both the word book. I'm sorry, he is wise that reads both the world book and the word book as two volumes of the same work and feels concerning them, my father wrote them both. Well, I found that to be just a super helpful picture. My father wrote both volumes. These volumes would be treasured by a child of that father. Because they are telling me really one message. But they're just two volumes. And we would be wise, he says, to see these two volumes are the same work. One work, two volumes. One volume is the book of the world, creation, nature, the stuff you see out there that's natural. And the other other book is the book of the Word, which is what's in your lap, the Bible. Okay? But it's just, it's one work. It's not some separate thing, but it's one work with two volumes. Now, the way Spurgeon outlines the whole is that the creatures show us God's glory, the Word shows us God's grace, and then David prays for grace. That's his outline um, for, for the Psalm. Well, all that prepped me to get a mind as to if it is indeed one work of God, the revelation going from the world book to the Word book, it's one work of God with two volumes, then what do I do with the end of this? What's going on? There's a third aspect to it, and it is when he begins to move towards the affections he has for the Word, he begins to speak of the warning that the Word has here. And he speaks of uh, fast-forwarding to prayer that the words of his mouth and the meditation of his heart will be pleasing in the sight of God. How can all this come together to give me what God means for us to understand in this text? That's what I wrestled over through the week. And... Spurgeon was again helpful. I believe it was Spurgeon. It could have been Calvin as I read some of these, but um, but no matter, what came together for me was the issue that we're talking about really a diligent preacher, a diligent or faithful preacher, and this is the psalm of the preacher, okay now. The real preacher that this is written to is Jesus. Remember the Psalms? The way you, you have to read them is twofold. One, foremost, the Psalms are about Christ. He, he spoke and said that all the words about me in the Psalms and the prophets and the, uh, the writings all are about me. So we know that foremost, we should read through the lens of how is this Psalm speak to or about Christ? Secondly, Those who are in Christ, it must also have some effect because it was written to us. It was written to his creation, to his people for us to understand and apply to our lives. And in respect to it being about a preacher, you could get mixed up and just think it's only the guy in the pulpit preacher. But this is anybody in the sense that wants to faithfully deliver God's revelation to another. And so it should be applicable to everyone. And even if it wasn't, it would show us that foremost, if he is speaking to a preacher who's supposed to be one you can imitate their faith from and follow in so far as they follow Christ, then whatever God's doing in their life to shape them and mold them and make them walk close with Jesus Christ should have an effect on the populace to which they're addressing. So in every way, this is applicable to me, it's applicable to you, it's applicable to Christ and to those beyond us. So I believe this psalm is about, what, is it, what does it require of us to be a faithful preacher? And the message is, foremost, it requires in these, in these words that we read here, to faithfully preach the Word of God, as we see in the first verses, it is to be for the glory of God. If the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork, heaven witnesses to us and against us if we do anything less than speak God's revelation for something less than the glory of God. And that means very plainly is when we handle God's Word, We are not handling it so we get the glory of men. We are handling it because we are more concerned about the glory of God than we are about the praise of people. And I think he starts with that because that's the chief end, is it not? We were made to glorify God. If you make the glory of any other thing or any other person to be the main thing, then guess what? You've lost the battle already. And you're not able to effectively actually help them because the thing that helps people most of all is that you actually love God above them. And if you live for the praise of man, that's one thing my ordination preacher had said to me. Is that one of the things that will kill you and destroy you is a love for the praise of men or fear of criticism of them. And that will be a constant battle. It is a constant battle because we're always concerned. I'm always concerned in my weakness and frailty about how I might bring criticism about something or how someone would like something. My natural aptitude, I am not strong enough to handle that. I have to lay myself before God and say, help me to be courageous enough to keep it about the glory of God and not fear the criticism of man. It's a constant struggle. It's not in me. It wasn't in Paul. It wasn't in anybody that handle the Word at all, whether it be apostolic or pastoral. It's not in anybody today, and it won't be in anybody tomorrow. There's only one person, one person who accurately could be saved doesn't regard the face of man and actually um, is more concerned about God perfectly, and that's Jesus. There's nobody on earth that's perfect in this area. There's nobody that doesn't have concern about criticism. There's nobody that doesn't get persuaded by praise. There's no perfect man. And therefore, if we're going to even uh, do our duty as we ought to in some measure, pleasing to the Lord, we're going to have to follow him in this. And of course, how did Jesus do this? Well, the Pharisees came up and uh, the Pharisees came up. Let's use John the Baptist a minute. you got to love John the Baptist. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How's that for welcoming the people that came out to hear you speak? Or, or this? Let's go to the other extreme. Um, well, let's, let's cover Jesus first. Jesus said when Pharisees and those who were the religious crowd at the time came up, He called them a brood of vipers. That means a bunch of snakes. So, I don't know about... You, but if I was in that category, and Jesus says you're one of the snakes amongst the crowd here, I don't know how tickled I would be about that. I mean, I might, in my natural flesh, if I wasn't regenerate, I'd probably want to leave. I'd probably just be done with that. I'd be like, I don't want to listen to you. You just call me uh, a brood of vipers. For some reason today, it's so beyond me. But some people just like to be talked down to all the time talk nice to them, and it's almost like they're like, man, I need somebody to just tell me how bad I am. I think we need to be people that actually accept truth, whether it's good or bad. And there's another thing though, that I think is very prevalent today, and that is when we fear criticism and we're not loving the glory of God above when when we have to appear to the world We have to appear to the world as if we're unorthodox. We have to appear because they criticize us and they say, you're a heretic, you're this, you're that. When the truth is you're not. The truth is you stand on the Word of God, whatever it says. And I think there's a lot of that going on in the Reformed camp these days. And so I warn of that because I would rather... I would rather be shepherded and cared for by someone who stands on the Word no matter what people think. Even when the the conservative crowds are cheering or when they're hating. Either way, you want somebody who's focused on the Word of God. And that's the type of men we need to be if we're going to be faithful, diligent preachers of the Word. If we're going to proclaim the Word of God to others, We're going to have to make the glory of God our chief and main focus. And we're going to have to actually fight in prayer and encouraging each other to keep on and stand true no matter what everybody's thinking. And that goes for not just individuals, it actually encompasses the whole church because there are times when people will slander the church and say, I heard about that church. That church up there, they believe that people... Um, you know, they believe those people don't have a free will. They believe those people out there, they're a bunch of Calvinists, and they think, they think that, you know, everything's just chosen out from the beginning. Or they think the whole world's going to be saved. Um, you know, everybody's going to be Christian. They're universalists. So they believe this. And they take just little things out and slander the church. And they're not telling the truth about the church. They're not honoring the church. They're not seeking to edify the church. If they had been in the church and been cared for by the church, they'd never say those things. But there are people that want to come against the church and want to speak ill of the church. And the church as a whole, not just a person, but the church as a whole has to decide who they fear. The church has to decide too what are they going to fight for. And, um, and I know... Um, The Lord's afforded me some opportunities at times where I've been able to do a little bit of that, of defending and clearing away some things. And I remember one time I was in a meeting with pastors and a subject came up to do with the sovereignty of God and, and these type of things. And I was already the black sheep among the bunch. Everybody knew I was the Calvinist guy. And there was a few other Calvinist guys in there too, but they didn't get picked on because they were kind of closet Calvinist guys. But I was the guy who had a big old X on him, you know. And, and they're, you know, going out of their way to kind of talk bad about it. And I remember going and saying, look, uh, there was something brought up about somebody hurt somebody, and it was basically because they were Calvinists. They were jerks. Calvinists are jerks. And this is the thing. I'm in the room. They know I'm a kind guy. Of, I'm like, well, I haven't been a jerk to you yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> but nonetheless, um, I handled myself politely. I, I, have, I had a long-standing relationship with the speaker who was speaking that day. And I, he knew me when I started pastoring my first church. And uh, so he knew me for for a long time. And I was sitting in there. And we had a respect for each other. And he was at the time the leader over all the evangelism in the state convention. And so he was speaking. And a pastor was speaking about how bad these Calvinists were. And so I said, your problem has nothing to do with Calvinism you basically have a sociopath personality that you're talking about. It has nothing to do with Calvinist. It has to do with someone who is mentally unstable and who's sinning against you. And that could be a Calvinist or an Arminian. It doesn't matter who that is. So, we talked a little bit. And the speaker comes out. He's, remember, remember now, he's the guy over evangelism. There's always the accusation about not being evangelist. He's a guy of evangelism. He comes up and he says, I agree with Brian. And, he, and the guy just backed up, what? And he said, that guy said, are you saying you believe in that Reformed theology stuff? He said, yeah, I think, I think he's right. And I was surprised at that point. So we're both back like this in conversation. And what came out of it was is that we were able to deal with the issue. It had nothing to do with a conviction that people will always have different levels of understanding on. There will be, till Jesus comes back, likely, people that will fight tooth and nail to be reformed and people that will fight tooth and nail not to be. Just a fact of, of life and the matter that there's always this contention about... Um, about the views about God on this issue. And our goal would be to help people understand the truth on it. That's why we have a conviction. But what I find here is that in the midst of all that, when our focus is on the glory of God, we can fight for what's right. And what got dispelled that day is from that point on, not only did that pastor, but the others, they weren't looking at me as black sheep anymore. And I went on and I led that group of pastors for three straight years faithfully every month training them to the point where, where they even want me to do a school in the area. Now that all fell through because of other things and I'm not going to get into that. I share the testimony of it in the sense that God allowed me in that moment to be able to dispel some lies and untruth not only about Calvinism but also about how they viewed us as a church and the association at the time. And I was so thankful at that point. And I feel that there was a, somewhat of a bridge made in that area to where I could still have a conversation with that person and there's at least a respect. We don't agree. We don't agree on how we should view God. We don't agree on, on the theology of how God saves sinners. But we do agree that it's important for us to be focused on the glory of God together. <clears throat> Largely speaking, this is the thing that you can handle church and family conflicts with best. If you read a book, there's a book by Ken Sand. I think it's Ken Sand. S-A-N-D-E. It's called Peacemakers. And it's it's a book that this guy basically walks through how he helped people come together and overcome disagreements. And he used this in litigation. And... As a Christian, he used it in churches. And so what he he said, and maybe you can use this, but what he said was, the first thing you have to do is you have to get the people to sit down and find the common ground between these believers. And what's the common ground between all the believers? We all want to glorify God. So you say to brother so-and-so, or sister Syntyche, Right? (laughs) In the Bible, because there's a real live case of that in the Bible, you say to these two sisters, you say, "You both want God to be glorified, right?" They say, "Yeah, yes, Pastor, I want, I want God to be glorified. I want God to be glorified." Great, we've got the common ground. We're, we're at least there. We both want to glorify God, and then you have to move through some other steps in the matter. But the for the purpose I'm using this is, there has to be people that care about the glory of God. Above all, for there to be any ability to make peace. Doctrine unites. Glorifying doctrine unites. Now, if that's not there, if the glory of God is not the goal, yeah, you can't make any peace between that. And Jesus said that He brings a sword in such cases to the world. There's division. And there'll be division everywhere where the glory of God is not treasured. But among God's people who treasure the glory of God, there should not be anywhere in the church of God where there has to be any type of division because the glory of God is our goal and we should find ways to love each other and to display to the world God's glory to the world. It should be our value. It should be what God says, pursue peace. We should do all that we can in such cases. Now, I've spent enough time on that. We need to go to the next. And that is, if you're going to be a faithful preacher of the Word, The glory of God's got to be number one. It's going to have vast effects upon you, your congregation, upon your families, and upon individuals around you if the glory of God is your goal. Number two, day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. What is that saying? Well, it's an example revealed from heaven and revealed from nature to tell us that a faithful, diligent preacher of the Word, he preaches regularly and constantly. If you remember what Timothy was told by Paul, he says, preach the Word in season and out of season. That's 2 Timothy 4. In season and out of season. That means when it's in season. When it's prime time. When everybody's accepting it. But then when it's out of season. When it seems like it's not always... The best time. You don't just give up telling people the truth when it's convenient or inconvenient for you. You do it all the time. You should be known as men and women who are regularly telling the truth. Now it takes certain wisdom to do that, but that's not we're not getting all that. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, this particular verse I just want to label. Eloquent Christ likeness. If it was speaking directly to Christ, obviously you can't be any more Christ like than being Christ yourself. But the point is, is that there's a sense in which this conveys beauty. It conveys eloquence. It conveys something of uh, the type of beauty that Christ spoke in his ministry. And so if you want to find out what it is to have eloquence, evangelical eloquence, and you read the Gospels and you read how Jesus proclaimed the word. You read Sermon on the Mount and you read how he opens with a cascade of blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the poor in spirit and, and so forth. So we need we need to work always on our um, beauty of the language. That's why poetry and all those type of things, the way we say things is part of the message in the media. Um, there's a great book out there by Neil Postman. It's a classic. It's, he's not a believer. He's a, he was a, um, uh, in Judaism. I believe he was Jewish. So he was an unbeliever. And he wrote a book, though, that has some valuable information to this day. And I would encourage you to read it. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it's about the medium being the message, meaning television was meant for entertainment. So when you turn on the TV, what should you expect you should expect there to be a bunch of fluff, a bunch of entertainment. That's why you're going to watch it. You're not going there to get, your, uh, to get an education. You're going there to be entertained. Entertainment's not sinful. But if you go to the television, he's saying to get your education. That's a foolish thing. And, and as people began to do that in history, he details how it has dumbed down our society. And his thesis has proven very true. Because the moment television began to enter, even before that, all of the other things, telegraph, all those things, the way technology is used matters. Television's meant to entertain. It's not meant to educate. Uh, news, for example, how we read the news, right? It used to be you read in print. You read a story. There's been a murder. There's been an accident. There's been a a nuclear uh, threat and you have time to really process that. You're like, I just, man, I'm stepping back from that. You converse with someone about that. You're reading it in print. That's the way the news was meant. But then they began to put news on television. And so what do you get? You get, there's a cat rescued out of a tree on Park Street, you know, at such and such a time. And then you move Um, there's missiles aimed at us about to, uh, you know, blow off the side of the hemisphere of part of the earth. And then they say, and next. (laughs) Okay. It doesn't make a lot of sense to say, and next, like that stopped the show. Like if I'm reading that in the newspaper, it's kind of like, Hey, Hey honey, come over here. Guess what is in the news today? We need to slow down. This is crazy. This is like earth shattering news. But see, Television has programmed us to just go to whatever's next. We just are desensitized to it. We, we don't really even take it in, The fact. Take the issues today, right? You get a blip on the screen about the border being invaded if you get that. You're not even getting that because it's being censored all over the place, right? What you are getting is you're pulling up, you know, the Fox News app and you're looking at all the stuff there if you can get past all the ads. I don't recommend it. I have Sherry look at it for me. I don't look at that stuff. So you get all that and all those news articles, one after another after another. It can be just equally as damaging. And so the way we read our news is attached to the medium and it affects us. doesn't mean we don't read the news. It just means we need to be intentional about it. We're losing a sense of what it was intended to do. And so it's very vital that we look at The way speech is used, the way it's intended, what it's intended to do in our lives. And when we when we have the word of God, we have an obligation in order to uh, speak the truth, not just in love, but we are to speak it beautifully as we possibly can. That's why hymns were written. That's why all these things that we sing are beautiful and they make us meditate on the word sometimes. We hear a a certain amount of propositions being told in the pulpit, but there's nothing like being able to sing the truth and to proclaim it. Isaac Watts, he would prepare a sermon every week and he would prepare a hymn to sing. And the congregation would sing it every week. He was a tremendously gifted man. We need men like that. We should pray for men like that to be raised up in our congregation that not only can preach the Word, but will actually write songs to the words that will write poetry that will convey the beauty and the glory of his word. Because in creation, there's that beauty. You some of y'all have traveled places where you have seen beautiful landscapes, places I've only seen on TV. You've seen you've seen them live in person. The grandeur that that is described there, the, the, the feeling the, the, uh, the beauty that you get to experience face-to-face in that moment. It's beautiful. Well, God made that. God made that beauty. He made those mountains. He made those fields. He made that part of the country. And He made it for our joy. He made it. That is the reward. To go and enjoy that. And to delight in that. And it should be when we proclaim the Word of God that people see it as, I'm not coming to hear the Word of God so that I can have a best life now. I want to pick on, on just Olsteen. He's just an easy pick. Let me pick, let me think. Of, it, it's, it's not just so you get, you get um, just a focus on, okay, I'm happy for the day. Come to the Lord's house and be happy for the day because of this. Or it's not just so, so I can get that burden off my back. It's the fact that there has to be something achieved in this In the midst of it, where you see the moment of just learning that is the reward itself. Regardless, regardless of if it it provides something for you beyond the point. Is that the fact that you get to enjoy the glory of God in those moments that that are set before us. And that we don't think about this as a means to an end. It is the end goal to glorify Him. Eternity and all time in heaven will be spent worshiping God and enjoying Him forever. And so I, I think we should be always concerned with how we speak the Word of God. And then there's this. The fourth verse, which is quoted. Their voice goes out through all the earth to the words the end of the earth, and in them He has set a tent for the sun. And with this, He's saying it goes to everywhere, to all peoples and all nations, So we should be concerned that everybody gets the word of God in their own language. Now, that doesn't mean showing up and speaking in a bunch of gibberish and howling like dogs like some churches do. That's ridiculous. How we've allowed that to go on in any society without it being rebuked, I have no idea, is God's people. God has called the church of God to speak with an intelligible voice and to bring the Bible into the language of the people. That's what the Reformation was built on. It was built on bringing this Word so that people could understand it in their own language. And we see that it's something in which in Paul's day, he views that the Word of God actually reached the world of that time, the Roman world. Which tells you something about Matthew 24, doesn't it? Because it said, when this gospel is preached to the whole world, meaning the Roman Empire at that time, the end would come. And that was your destruction of A.D. 70. Some people be like, well, is that it? No, that's not it. That is the prototype, a prototype for the fact that God will keep his word just as he did in the first century. And we can trust he will keep it to the end of time. And He's going to bring every promise to come to pass. I was listening to Alistair Begg this afternoon. And I listened to a word he was saying. And I remember at the end, he said, he said something all along, along the lines. He said, I don't know how, as one shepherd, He will bring all the nations to Himself. I don't know how. But he confesses He believes it. That should be the way we take Scripture. We don't know how that can happen. But if the Word of God says it happens, we believe that will happen. And we trust His Word will go to the end of the world. Well, Paul said during that time it did using verse 4. He said it it did reach the end of the earth. They have all heard, just as it said, the knowledge of the Lord covered the Roman Empire, but it didn't mean they all believed. But a lot of them did. And then it goes into this joy. Preach it with joy. If there is not joy in telling people about God, it gives a great stumbling block to believing in God. If it's just like any other issue or any other dilemma and we don't have joy in the things that we have taught others, how can we expect them to want it? How can we expect them to want to come and eat the food that we say... It was okay. No, if one of you tells me, hey, I say, Hey, what restaurant did you go to this afternoon? You say, Well, I went to this restaurant and well, how was it? It was okay. Well, we just had, you know, this, this. But if you start describing to me like it had, you know, they had a side of this, and it was just melting like butter off the side of the plate, and there was this food there that they put in I don't even know exactly what it was called, but they spiced and seasoned it up and it was just wonderful. And I'm starting to make y'all hungry right now, which is what we're about to do next. And they had an extra side of this and they brought out this big drink and then what they did is they, they brought this bun out and they filled it and stuffed it and then poured fries over it. Well, you've got my attention because you've got some joy about what you're telling me. And it's convincing. And see, what's revealed is that when we share something like the Word of God, here He says, there's a depiction. It comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber like a straw man runs its course with joy. It's a picture. It's poetry. It's something that gives us in our mind something we wouldn't get just by playing It's okay. No, it's glorious. And it's something that's to be lifelong. You don't ever run out of the need to where you don't need to tell people about the Lord. In fact, it will be very important for you as you get older to tell younger people about the Lord. But it will also be important for you at the early part of your walk to tell others about the Lord. And then, not only does it need to be lifelong. That's verse 6. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The circle of them, it's speaking rising from the end of the heavens. It goes into the law of the Lord. <clears throat> and I didn't spend any time on that, but I'm going to go through it quickly before we close out. It revives the soul. It makes wise the simple. It rejoices the heart. It enlightens the eyes. So the confidence here is that The psalmist is confident in the Word of God being able to do what only God can do. It revives our souls. It makes the simple wise. It makes our hearts glad. It makes our eyes being able to see with insight. If you bring the Word of God to people, it gives them what they need in order to live pleasing to the Lord. But it also does something very valiant here. And that is it first does it in the preacher's life. Because here, if you you picture this psalm to the preacher. It moves to a prayer and a desire. Because it is when this man is looking at the word of God. He says, this is how I'm warned. And this is how I'm rewarded. This is how I can discern my errors. Because I don't know my heart, but God does. And I know that there's things in my heart that aren't right. And I need one to justify me. I, want, I need one to keep me justified. I need a high priest. I need someone to cover my hidden faults. You know, it's oftentimes we're just going off of feelings, aren't we? We're going off of how we feel. And we feel like, oh, we've been released of that. But the truth is, in the presence of God, we have things we don't even know we've messed up in. And the psalmist says here, in the presence of God, I even know I have hidden faults. I have things that I don't aren't even visible, that I need God to cover. So He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. If you were to ask, perhaps as you're reading the Word and studying the Word, is there anything wrong? Is anything going on wrong in your life? And you've prayed up and you've confessed up and you've repented up. Even after all of that, after all that, the truth is, is we know that deep down, we probably have things that we can't even see that we have errors in. And we need God for that. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And he says, then I shall be blameless. So he he understands, I'm not going to be able to be worthy to stand before you or others unless you cover my sins. Make me blameless. Make me innocent of the great transgression. And how easy it is to look at the Word of God And know the facts about the Word. But also not love the Word how it ought to be loved. I mean, do you love the Word of God? Do you love the Scriptures? Do you love to hear the counsel God has to give you? Versus the counsel the world has to give you? Do you love the world news or do you love the Word news? What what thrills you? And if we have to be honest, there's times it's difficult for us to get into the Word because we're so into the world. And we need to change our affections. We need to pray like David prays. But above all, there's nobody that can get up and stand up as if they're perfect in any of these things. If we waited till we were perfect to tell someone the Word and the truth of the Gospel, we'd never tell it. If we had to find a day in which we had it all right in order for us to tell people with the joy and love of this Word to come to Christ, we would never tell them. So we have to pray. Lord, at the end of the day, please let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, and he's back to the same thing he began with, let it be acceptable in your sight. In other words, Help me to be focused more on what You think about it. Help me to be concerned more with Your glory than I am my own. Fear of criticism, the love of praise. Help me to be steadfastly focused on what pleases You because You're my rock and You're my Redeemer. Let's stand together. We're going to sing a final song. And it's going to be from 300 before the benediction, My Jesus Fair. And may we look to Him as such.